And Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Give me a uh, thumbs up if you are getting some sound and you're getting my audio here. Um, just pop that in the chat. We still have some technical difficulties here where we've gone um, to um, the smaller screen today just because we're waiting to do some updates on the technology. So can you hear me loud and clear? Chris Warnicky, Shabbat Shalom, loud and clear. We've got some distractions in the back, but we're good to go here. Yep, all right. Splendid, splendid. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Let's wait for a few more people to... Uh, Yes, Bruce Edmund, Shabbat Shalom, loud and clear. Angela Bonjour, can you hear me? Yes, Mickey. Okay, it sounds like I'm good to go then. All right. Well, this week's Torah portion blessings to everybody is Chukah. So let's start off in our customary manner. Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. Remember, you can connect with us six days a week at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect. And that's where you'll be able to um, sign up and register for our upcoming Moed. Of course, we have the Feast of Tabernacles that will be fast approaching. And people can come from all over the world and gather with us for nine days here in Oregon, right by some of the best fishing on um, the Santiam River here, just outside of Salem, Oregon. So go to TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect and keep an eye on that page for the sign up that will be coming hopefully soon. This week's Torah portion begins in Bar Midbar Numbers chapter 19, and it extends all the way through chapter 22 and verse 1. It's called Chukat, Chukat, which means a statue of. Now, there's another word in the scripture called a Mishpat or Mishpatim, which means a judgment of. So oftentimes what you'd see in the King Jimmy is, these are my statutes and these are my judgments. What's the difference? Well, this week we're going to dive in and focus really on chapter 19, which is the law of the red heifer, or in the Hebrew, red heifer is para aduma, or paraduma. Para aduma, the law of the red heifer. We're going to focus in on that. And of course, the writer of the book of Hebrews brings that into its fullness by showing us how Yahushua came and fulfilled the law, the Torah, of the para-aduma. But before we do, I want to address chukat, chukat, a statue, because really this is about how we approach the commandments of Yahuwah. Because when I was in Calvary Chapel, I was taught to approach the commandments of Yahweh a certain way. Now, when I was secular, I approached the commandments of Yahweh a different way. And now that I'm in Torah, specifically comprehending the Malkitzedic priesthood, I approach the commandments another way. So how then do we live? Chukat. How do we approach the commandments? That's what I'm going to focus on. And then we'll delve in further and look at the law of the red heifer in how that 
um, is attributed to Yahusha. So everybody got me clear as mud in the chat. I like being able to see you guys in the chat. And um, let's let's dig in. A chuk, a chuk in the Hebrew means a statue. And a mishpat means a judgment. What's the difference between chukat or chukim and mishpat or mishpatim? Statutes and judgments. What's the difference? Because this is the kicker for how the Christian church has become lawless. Not comprehending the difference between chukat and mishpat. Hukim and mishpatim in the plural. A chuk, a statue, is not self-evident. It's not self-evident. So, the Christian church, because it's not self-evident, it doesn't apply. It's not there. Let me give you an example of a commandment that is not self-evident. In fact, it's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, but only if you have a Hebraic mind. Because the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that's actually written in the text is what? I am Yahweh thy Elohim, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is a commandment. This is actually the first commandment. Yet, because it's not self-evident, the Christian church was unable to cognize it as a commandment. And therefore, they evaded it and then split the second commandment into two commandments. Look at verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because they were unable to cognize the first commandment as a commandment, because it's not self-evident, what's the commandment there? I am Yahweh thy Elohim, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's not a commandment. Well, it is, but it's not self-evident. What's the command? The command is believe. Do you believe that I am Yahweh thy Elohim that brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of slavery? And what's so important about this commandment is this is one of two qualifiers of the deity. If you get rid of this commandment, there's only one other commandment out of the whole ten that qualifies the deity. Now, if you get rid of both of these commandment qualifiers of the deity, then the other eight commandments, they can be through for a Hindu god. They can be through for a Greco-Roman. They can be for the God of your own making. There's only two commandments out of the whole ten that qualify the deity. That is why it's so important. Are we good? Oh. I had a question. Someone was making a comment here in house that maybe I should make an announcement because um, people aren't finding our stream. So if you have your brethren that uh, are wondering where we are, we're on a different stream today. So get them over onto this stream 
And um, that would help because, yeah, well, I guess we don't have as many people that are currently found this stream. They're most probably on the old stream. So maybe I didn't delete that. But bear with me. Back to what I'm talking about here. Go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. We're looking at what the word chukat means. Chukat means a statue which is not self-evident. An example of a statue, a commandment that is not self-evident, is the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20. I am Yahuwah Elohim, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's not self-evident, but the commandment there is believe. Now, if you look at verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20, you can see now how the Christian church, because they weren't able to cognize the first commandment, they would have only had nine commandments, right? Well, then they had to take the second commandment and split it into two to make ten commandments again. But the problem is, the second commandment is just one commandment, which is what? Look at verse 3. Thou shalt have no other Elohim before me. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I am Yahuwah thy Elohim, and I am a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, what's fascinating about this, verse 3 and verse 4, verse 5 and verse 6, they're all one commandment. And what's the commandment? The commandment is a prohibition against idolatry. It's that simple. It's one commandment. Having another God is what? idolatry. Making a graven image is what? It's idolatry. Bowing down to it is idolatry. And when you do that, it comes with a generational curse, verse 5, for disobedience. Or if you don't do it, it comes with a generational blessing, verse 6, for obedience. That's one commandment. But because the Christian church was unable to cognize the difference between a chuk, a statue, and a mishpat, a judgment, a statue not being self-evident, the first commandment, I am Yahweh thy Elohim who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery, because they were unable to cognize that as a commandment, which is a clarification of the deity that you're serving. There was only one Elohim that delivered a people from Egypt and out of slavery. If you get rid of that commandment, you've only got nine left. So we got a problem. So the Christian church takes the second commandment, that is one big commandment of prohibition from idolatry with a curse attached or a blessing attached if you don't go into idolatry, and they split it into two, giving them 10 again. You see? Then we go down a little bit further, and you find... If you would kick out the first commandment that's not self-evident, yet it's the very commandment that qualifies the God that you serve, right? 
Because, like I said, there is one, only one Elohim who delivered a people out of Egypt and delivered a people from slavery and made them a nation and brought them the Torah. This is the identifier of the deity. Otherwise, you could end up worshipping a god of your own making, right? Especially if you get rid of the second qualifier of the deity. And what is the second qualifier of the deity? What commandment would that be, brethren? Commandment number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So if you get rid of the fourth commandment, and then you get rid of the first commandment because you were unable to cognize it because it was a hook, you end up with what? A God of your own theological making that is codified at the Council of Nicaea. Because now you can worship the God of your own making. Because it's no longer the God of Israel that delivered a people from Egypt, delivered them out of slavery, and gave them the Sabbath. There is only one Elohim on the whole of the created realm that did that. It's the qualifier of the deity. You kick out the qualifier of the deity and you've actually become idolaters. And that is how we ended up, brethren, in this mess with all these denominations because they are making it up as they go along because they have got rid of the first commandment, split the second commandment into two, so they've still got ten. They've turned the fourth commandment that, again, qualifies the deity and kicked it out and made it a principle and transferred the day over onto the day of the pagans. This is crazy land because they didn't approach a hook the way they were supposed to. Hukat, the title of our Torah portion. Remember the Sabbath day is the second qualifier of the deity because there is only one Elohim who delivered a people out of Egypt and slavery and gave them the Sabbath. And like I say, if you kick out the first commandment because it's like unto a hook, a hook, excuse me, not self-evident, and then you kick out the fourth commandment, you can misappropriate the Elohim and turn him into a god of your own making, which is idolatry. And this is what the Council of Nicaea and later the Protestant church succumbed to, making a god of their own creed and doctrines. Another god void of Moses, void of Torah, void of the Exodus, void of Israel, and void of the Sabbath. Do you see how it happened? I mean, I remember sitting next to my wife at Calvary Chapel and she would draw circles in her Bible in pencil around remember the Sabbath day. And then we'd go out to Red Lobster afterwards, you know, all you can eat crab back in the day. And uh, she'd be like, whatever happened to the Sabbath day? And I'm like, well, it's Sunday. And then we're like, well, that makes no sense. So then I went back to the Bible study in the midweek and brought it up and became very unpopular. Anyway, let us continue. A mishpat is a judgment that is self-evident. So what are some judgments or commandments are, that are self-evident? 
Well, commandments six through 10 of the 10 commandments are self-evident, aren't they? Right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not cover. Those are self-evident commandments, right? That's like unto a mishpatim. So that's how I wanted to kind of delve in because of this word chuk or chukat. It's very important that we understand that chukat, chukim, mishpat, and mishpatim, they are relevant commandments and statutes and judgments that we don't kick them out just because they're not self-evident. Because in chukat, you will see something that is not self-evident. In fact, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, pondered and pondered and pondered the law of the red heifer in this week's Torah portion, that even Solomon didn't have the wisdom, the chokmah, to understand its full significance. So let's read the text together. Bar Midbar, Numbers chapter 19. And Yahuwah spoke to Moshe and to Achron, saying, This is a law of the Torah which Yahuwah has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer, para aduma in the Hebrew, a red heifer, a perfect one, in which there is no blemish, on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and he shall bring it outside the camp and shall slay it before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times towards the front of the tent of appointment. And the heifer shall be burned before his eyes. He burns his hide, its flesh, its blood, and its dung. And the Kohen, the priest, shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and throw them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Verse 7. The priest shall then wash his garments and shall bathe his body with water and afterwards shall come into the camp. But the priest is unclean until evening. And he who is burning it washes his garments with water and shall bathe his body in water and is unclean until evening. And a clean man shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and shall place them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of Israel, for the water of uncleanness, for it is the cleansing from sin. Now, key in, pay attention to verse 9, because I'm going to expand upon that by taking you into the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. Now, verse 10. And he who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his garments and is unclean until evening. And it shall be a law forever to the children of Israel and to the sojourner who sojourns in their midst. He who touches the dead of any human being is unclean for seven days. So, you know, those of you that go to the Catholic um, funerals where they, they lay them out and everybody gives the, you know, the body a good poke or whatever they do, and then, you know, now, you, now you're in trouble for seven days if you were going up to the temple. But, you know, it's a little bit of a light-hearted refreshment. Not refreshing when you have to go through that kind of ritual, though, is it? I think they laid the Pope out for like 13 days once, didn't they? I mean, that must be a quite considerable amount of flamaldehyde. 
Verse 12. He is to cleanse himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day he is clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day, then on the seventh day he is not clean. Anyone who touches the dead of a human being and does not cleanse himself defiles the dwelling place of Yahuwah, and that being shall be cut off from Israel. He is unclean, for the water of his uncleanness was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still upon him. This is the Torah when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are on the, in the tent are unclean for seven days. And it goes on and expands more and more about this particular ritual of the red heifer all the way through the rest of this chapter. So what I would like to do while I still have you here is to look into the Torah, the law of the red heifer, the paraduma. Now, like I say, according to traditional Judaism, this mysterious ritual is a ritual that even Solomon, in all of his wisdom, despaired of learning because there is a secret mystery behind the paraduma or the paraduma and its regulations. Now, if we break down this word, paraduma or paraduma, if you look it up in your Bible, meaning the red cow or red heifer. But para heifer is also the broken one. Now, you can put a finger if you want, and we'll touch on it if I have time, in Deuteronomy chapter 21. You may remember in Deuteronomy, Devarim chapter 21, there was a Torah, a law of the unsolved murder. If some bloke was found out in the field, his body, and um, nobody knew who smote him, then what they would do is they would get the elders of the city, of the surrounding cities, and the Kohen, and they would measure the body to the nearest city, and then those judges in that city and elders would be responsible for the judgment. And that heifer's neck would be broken, and there would be a whole ritual with that. Because the heifer was known as the broken one. Duma, as in aduma, means what? Paraduma or paraaduma means red, like red cow, or ruddy, or it can mean man, aduma, adam. It can mean lentils, right? Therefore, para-aduma means what? The broken man. You see, we're starting to reveal now the mystery to you because we're on the other side of Mashiach, whereas Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was on a side that was still veiled. But the veil has been torn, right? Duma can also mean silent. So if you look at the combinations just of para-aduma, the broken man is silent. He was silent before his accusers. You see, we're on the other side of the torn veil, and we can start to see the revelation. We are truly a treasured people to be able to have this kind of hokma wisdom that Solomon sought his life 
and despaired because he couldn't figure out all that was to be. Think about this. The sacrifice of the broken and silent man who stood before all those that handled the sacrifice that would become defiled. That's what the ritual tells you. All of those that handled the sacrifice of the broken and silent man, they actually become defiled. And then all of those that are defiled, that are outside the camp, become clean. And that was the accusation. Why do you surround yourself, Yahusha, with gluttons and tax collectors and, and, and whores and prostitutes? All of those that were defiled became cleansed, yet all of the Pharisees and all of those that seemed in their own eyes to be pure that were involved with the handling of the red heifer became defiled. Well, that's the ritual. Well, that's the ritual. Here's the mystery. Thus, the sacrifice is taken outside the camp, and at that sacrifice that is taken outside of the camp has the unique ability to take on sin and thus purify the person it was for. And where would all of this take place? It would take place across the Kidron Valley on what was called in the Hebrew, the Mikpad altar. Well, the Mikpad altar is the altar of the Para Aduma or the red heifer. But it was also the very altar of Adam, where Adam's skull was crushed, the skull of the mountain. It was also Abraham's altar, where he took Isaac on one of the mountains of Moriah, this was the Lamb of Yahweh altar, the sacrifice that purifies the impure and at the same time renders the impure pure. That's amazing. Now, let's look at the ritual of the cleansing pots that I spoke to you about to take a little note in Numbers chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. But you'd have to find the revelation of that in John chapter 2. So turn with me in John chapter 2, and I'll start to now open up more about this ritual of the para-aduma. Because remember, there were certain jars that were distributed around the region of Judea. Because what would happen... If somebody who lived a hundred miles away from Jerusalem and their mother-in-law died and they had to cover their, carry their mother-in-law outside of the tent, would they be defiled? Well, yes, they would be defiled. So were they supposed to trek a hundred miles all the way up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to get cleansed? No. What would happen is they would have jars of the waters of purification from the ashes of the red heifer that would be distributed all throughout the region of Judea in all of the towns that had a rabbinical authority. And they would store those jars in the town 
in the synagogue for when a time for when a person was defiled so that they could go to the waters of purification to be cleansed without having to trek all the way up to Jerusalem. These are the stone jars that we find in, in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. Let's go there right now in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, John, Yochanan chapter 1, verse 29, it is written, The next day, Yochanan saw Yahushua coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of Yahuwah, which taketh away the sin of the world. So, John chapter 1, verse 29 is what? Starts off with the next day. So what does that tell you? That there was a day preceding it, right? So what day would this be? This would be day two, would it not? This would be day two. So now let's go down and find where day three is. Day three is in John chapter 1, verse 35. Track with me here. I'm going to lay it out for you. Day three is on in Yochanan, John chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, again, the next day, after day two, after Yochanan stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Yahushua as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of Yahuwah. And two of the Talmudim disciples heard him speak, and they went off, and they followed Yahushua. Now look, we're going to find where day four is. Day four is in verse 43. The, the day following, day three, the day following, therefore day four, Yahushua would go forth into Galilee, and he findeth Philip. And he saith unto him, follow me. Now we'll go back to day three. Where are we going to find day three? John chapter two, verse one. I hope you're tracking with me. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Yahushua was there. Well, hang on a minute. It's day three, the third day. Well, actually not. It's actually the seventh day because it's the third day after day four. And now are you confused? Day four is in John chapter 1, verse 43, right? We just built the days. Day 1 preceded chapter 1, verse 29. Day 2 was the next day in John chapter 1, verse 29. Day 3 was again the next day in John chapter 1, verse 35. Day 4, the following day, was John chapter 1, verse 43. And then we find the third day, after day 4, which would make it day 7, is in John chapter 2, verse 1. You might have to go and rewind this later to figure out the days. But here is the kicker. Numerically, in Hebrew gematria, 3 plus 7 equals para- Aduma, the red heifer. So what is this telling you? This, now, Yochanan 
his writings were mysterious. Out of all of the gospel writers, the book of John is more sowed. It is more mysterious. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then we get into the sowed realm, oftentimes with John, with the revelation of Mashiach, the sowed realm. We've got the plain sense, we have the Ramez, we have the Drash, but Yochanan, he's a lot more into the sowed realm because he's revealing to us about the salvific work of Yahusha, which is the para aduma, the cleansing of the red heifer. Three and seven numerically in Hebrew gematria means para duma. Something right here is about to take place that will reveal a mystery relating to the law of the red heifer that we just read in Numbers chapter 9. Note in the gospel what happens on day 3 in chapter 1 verse 35. And then note what happens on day 7 in John chapter 2 verse 1. And see if it's got anything to do with Numbers chapter 19 that we just read. Because in on day 3 and day 7, the pure person, Yahusha, throws ash, figuratively, I mean, we know it's water, he's in the waters, he throws water, ash, figuratively, on the unclean on day 3 and day 7, and what happens? They become clean. They become clean. Day 3, Yochanan, the Kohen Haggadah, declares Yahusha the sacrifice of Yahuwah and the Malkizedic high priest. Remember, he says to Yahusha that he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. And Yahusha says, you must make for me thus fulfilling all righteousness. Meaning, he went into the water a king and then he came up thus fulfilling all righteousness, Zadik. He came up the Malkit Zadik. That point right there, there's the transference of the Levitical high priest, John, because Caiaphas was not legitimate. Yochanan, John, was the legitimate highest high priest. There's the transference right there of priesthood, and now the ritual of the red heifer takes place right in front of all the people where Yahusha sprinkles the waters on those that are unclean, making them clean. Those that are defiled are made clean right here. And then on the seventh day, three and four equals seven, three and, and seven, the law of the red heifer, we then find Andrew and Simon Peter are born again. They're made clean. Chapter um, 2, verse 11 is day 7. And we 4, we see what much more is being revealed about the red heifer. Those that were defiled are made clean. Then we get to the marriage at Cana. And here's the mystery. The wine came from the jars of purification and these were the jars of the red heifer, Numbers chapter 19, verse 9, that would have been stored in all of the communities that had a synagogue 
so that those that were defiled could be made clean without having to schlep it all the way up to Jerusalem. And what did Yahushua do? He used the very jars in this miracle. And we don't see the miracle. Because what he's trying to illustrate to us through the writer John is ultimately water and, think about this, water and blood will come out of the sacrifice making all of those that are defiled clean. And all of those that handled the sacrifice will be judged unclean. This is deep. Ma'im Chaim, living water. Now, the Mishnah, now, you know, I'm not into the Talmudic stuff, but, you know, the Mishnah does recount that children were used to draw and carry the water for this particular ceremony. Children were born and reared in isolation for the specific purpose of ensuring that they never came into contact with a corpse. And when I was in Jerusalem years and years ago, there is a whole community of children that live on these um, structures that are built. They're built on like a curve like this, and they live up here where air flows underneath. And from birth, because in Jerusalem, you could never, never... Um, discover where all the bones are and where all the dead is, right? So they would be defiled. So there's a whole group of Kohanim, of Levitical priests, their children, that are raised and live and are schooled and educated on raised piles so that they are never defiled. So when they go to rebuild the temple, that they will be ready for the priesthood because they know that this ritual is so important. Which brings me to my next text. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. We know in this piece of text, the heckle curtain or outer veil of the makom kadosh only. Now, in Hebrews 9, verse 8, in verse 8, verse 8, excuse me, there's this huge veil is described. It was 55 cubits high and 16 cubits wide. This was the veil that was rent. And this could be seen only from one particular place. East of Jerusalem, slightly elevated from the Paraduma altar where Yahushua was crucified. He was crucified on the very altar of the red heifer. That's the only place that was slightly elevated that you could see down over the Kidron Valley, over the wall, into the temple, and that's the witness. Now back to this Cana and what happened, and relating it to Yahushua. I don't know how long I've been going here. How long have I been going? 40 minutes, crying out loud. Is everybody tracking with me? Let me check with you guys in the chat here. It is powerful, isn't it? It's powerful stuff. It really is. 
blessings, blessings. Let me get back. Think about this. Yahushua died before sunset, meaning he was separated from Yahuwah. He who had no sin became sin for us. Well, how does that relate to the paraduma? It's the whole ritual. Yahushua's spirit, if you think about it, is the new wine that requires new vessels, right? New vessels of what? Incorruptible flesh, which is what Paul spoke to the Corinthians and the Romans about. That if you're in Yahushua, you're a new vessel, and if you're going to house his spirit, you, which is the new wine, the new wine needs to go into a new vessel. And that new vessel has to be incorruptible flesh. We become a completely new man in Yahushua. Not just Ruach, but flesh as well. The miracle of Yahushua changing water to wine is that our seed, having the restoration of the image of Yahuwah in our seed and flesh is for our purification. And it goes down the generations. That's powerful. Yahushua in the flesh is the manifestation of the glory of Yahuwah, typified by the changing of our water to wine for our purification. Our water must be changed to the new wine of Yahushua. We've got to be mikvahed in his blood. We've got to be mikvahed in his flesh. And then we've got to take on that incorruptible flesh so that we can handle the new seed of the born-again experience. This is what Nick at night could not comprehend. And this is all related to the law of the red heifer. Yahushua, spirit and flesh, meaning breaking down our flesh is what helps us become closer to Yahuwah. Yahushua, if you think about it, he is the water pots of water turned to wine, put in new bottles for the purification of you and I, all Israel. He is the red heifer that makes the waters of separation on the third day so that you and I can be clean on the seventh day, which is why we're to keep the fourth commandment. Think about that. We are healed, you and I, we are healed by the waters from the Shamayim, from the heavens. All 12 tribes scattered abroad and their companions that choose to be gathered together on the seventh day. Again, three and four equals seven. It's the law of the red heifer for your cleansing. It's all about discerning the difference between statutes and judgments and not kicking out the commandments so that we can come to this full revelation. And why is it then when we kicked out the first commandment, split the second commandment into two, we turned the fourth commandment into a Sunday observance, we sat there in church for all those years going, man, I am hungry and thirsty. And he says, if you come to me, you will not hunger or thirst anymore. And all the time I'm sitting there in church thinking, man, this is dry bones. There's got to be more. There's got to be something deeper to the commandments of Yahweh on how we now live. Because Yahushua is the new wine. 
that requires new bottles. He is the new seed, which is the new wine that requires a new body of an incorruptible flesh so that we can house the Ruach HaKodesh. Otherwise, we're a vexation to the spirit. And we're not in harmony. We have to live in harmony. Now notice, there were six water pots for the purification of the Jews that were turned into the new wine. What happened on day six of creation? That's when Yahweh creates man's seed. These water pots are symbolic of the new seed for new flesh and new bodies. Because you and I have got to be born again. Brit milah a circumcision of the heart. We have to be grafted in to Yahusha's incorruptible flesh. That new wine that was better than what anyone had ever tasted before. And nobody could tell where the wine came from. Just as today, nobody could tell where Yahusha's flesh came from. And still today, many can't discern. They keep asking the question, but they just can't seem to find the answer. And the governor of the feast, at the very feast, he was astounded that he could wait until midway through the celebration to reveal the new wine, to reveal the new spirit, to reveal the new flesh, the new seed. And the image of Yahweh is thus restored in man. It was very good wine. Why? We have got to acknowledge that it's not only what we need, but it is the fact that it's Yahusha's flesh that allows us to partake of this whole ritual. What is it written about? The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 11 verse 9 says thus, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new ruach within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, it's written, Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart, make you a new ruach. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Then in Ezekiel 32, 36, verse 26, it is written, A new heart also will I give you, and a new ruach will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So we know that Yahusha is the life-giving ruach. And that's what Paul spoke to in the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44, where it is written, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, meaning there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam, Adomah, was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a life-giving ruach or a quickening spirit. How bet that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. This is all related to the mystery 
of the red heifer because we know that the life is in the blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Now in the gospel writer Mark, in chapter 5, verse 35, all the way through to the 43rd verse of that chapter, we read the account about Yahusha and a dead girl. Remember that? Once Yahusha had become unclean, and he would have because he would have touched a dead girl, right? What would he have needed to do? He would have needed to go unto the ritual of the red heifer, and he would have needed to have the cleansing of the waters of the red heifer because he had become unclean. He had gone unto the girl, and in order to be made clean, he would have had to go through the whole ritual of purification using the ash of the red heifer. He would have had to bathe himself and wash his clothes and be unclean until evening because if he didn't, then he would have not kept the commandments of Yahuwah and he couldn't have been the Mashiach. That was required of him. And where did that take place? Down in the Galilee, right where these vessels were distributed all the way through the countryside. Even Yahusha was in touch with these vessels. So the miracle at Cana, where he says, fill the stone jars. Once you have the water mixed with the ash of the red heifer, and you take that water out of the jar, you cannot add water back into it. You can't. You must use it all, and then you have to mix a whole new batch. You cannot add water to it. Yahusha tells them, fill them up to the brim, and they do. That's astounding. That's astounding. So the first miracle is he was proclaiming himself as the Mashiach, as the Kohen Haggadol, because he was going and giving them the commandment of the Malkitzedic priesthood as Kohen Haggadol, and only the high priest had the authority to say, fill it up, because they would have had to start all the way from scratch, and they obeyed him. Once you have the water mixed with the ash of the red heifer, and you take that water out of the jar, you cannot add water back to it. You must use it all. You must then mix up a whole new batch. You can't add water to it. Yahusha tells them, fill them up to the brim, and they obey him. The first miracle, brethren, and we don't catch it because we're not sure of the ritual. We haven't been schooled in the ritual. He was proclaiming himself as the Malkitzedek Kohen Haggadal. I have the authority to take charge over the water that makes clean, that is the most holy. I, and I alone, can command you to fill those jars. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. His Malkitzedek authority and the revelation of the transference of the Levitical priesthood from the high priest of John to the Malkitzedek priesthood and high priesthood of Yahushua. Now, the second miracle was that Yahushua was able to transcend time. Now, we know 
Does resurrection transcend time? Of course it does. But they didn't know that he was going to resurrect. But he's showing right here. The second miracle at Cana is that Yahushua can transcend time. It's not that he turned water into wine. Because I can turn water into wine. And some of you are like, that's blasphemy. No, I can. And so can you. Any of us can turn water into wine. All you have to do is you have to plant some vines, pour water at the base of the vine, eventually wait a long, long time, and the vines will bring forth grapes, crush the grapes, and turn them into wine. It came from water. The element that is the miracle is not that he turned water into wine, because you and I can do that. It just takes time. The miracle is that Yahushua transcends time. The miracle is that Yahushua transcended time because you and I can turn water into wine. It just takes a little bit of time. You've got your grapevine, you pour water at the base, you tend it, it grows grapes, you pick them off, you crush them, then you make wine. Water turns into wine. That's just a natural realm but it doesn't happen instantly. The miracle in the water and the wine is the time. Is the time, brethren, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, this immortal, this corruptible puts on incorruptible. This is the miracle of our faith, that a dead man like me, like I once was, can be in transcend time and become a living, life-giving spirit through the ritual of purification from the sun. It can transcend the time of all my past sin. It can transcend the time of all my loss of hope. It can transcend the time of depression, oppression, and instantaneously be healed. Instant healing. Transcending time. That is only available through Yahushua. Buddha cannot do that. Hare Krishna cannot do that. The Catholic Church cannot do that. Calvary Chapel can't do that. Only the person of Yahushua can transcend the time in your life that has been robbed from you. Only the person of Yahushua can transcend depression, oppression, addiction, and everything instantaneously, instant healing. Look and live, look and live. The serpent, the look and live. It's so powerful. The miracle in the water and the wine is the time. Yahushua transcends time, brethren. And he's with you and I today because he transcends time. Wine means simcha. It means joy. He came, brethren to bring the sweetness and the joy of his salvation to you and I, all mankind, because number six means man. For those who will enter into the marriage festival on the seventh millennium, but if you do not accept his purifying water, the Ruach HaKodesh, which he gave on the third day, because he was raised from the dead on the third day by the power of the Ruach, which is life, then you do not have the oil the anointing in your lamp to enter into the marriage feast. And the Spirit is the sign of the covenant that will let you enter. Some power, 
powerful stuff. I don't think I have time to get into the law of the unsolved murder and the headless heifer. I mean, I think that's a whole nother teaching in itself. And I've already been banging on for 55 minutes. So here we are, brethren. Shabbat shalom. I've got you live right before me here chatting on the screen. So ask me anything and I'll see if I can answer. But, you know, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Redline me at TorahToTheTribes.com. And at this point, it would be most appropriate for you to give us some thumbs up. Thumb up right now and hit that notification button. Subscribe to the ministry channel. It really does help. And if you're watching this later, you can always put your comments down in the comments section. Edify one another and connect with your brethren the world over because we are Torah to the tribes, greetings and gathering all 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. All right, give me a moment here while I navigate the chat. Malki Zedekal Bast, Mickey, thank you, Shabbat Shalom. Ah, that's, a, that's a good teaching, I think, um, the red heifer, I always enjoy it. Chris Warnicky, can you please repeat everything after greetings to the 12 tribes? <laughs> you mean do the whole thing again? Ah, Craft Case Nate. Shabbat Shalom, Craft Case Nate. He says, hey, Matthew, if you want to go into these other topics, you could make a long, one hour long um, video during the week so we can see the rest of the teaching or your other thoughts. Well, thank you. That's encouraging. I, I feel like I bang on too long that I'm surprised any of you are still with me, but you're so faithful, and especially last week when we had all of this um, live stream problems. But um, blessings, thank you. Brad, Shabbat Shalom. Isn't schlep Yiddish? Isn't that expression used by those that say they are Jews but are not? Using Yiddish is fun. But is it kosher? Am I being a tukus? No, I think you're bringing up a good point. But it is kind of fun though, isn't it? But it is, you're correct. It is Yiddish and schlep. Yes, those that say they're Jews. The Ashkenazi, right? Yes, yes, yes. A midweek message. Well, I wonder if that would even, uh, people would tune in. Emissary of Elohim, Shabbat Shalom to you. Shabbat Shalom to you. All right, let's see if we've got anything, any other questions here. Scott has a very good um, um, question. Scott Bell, how do we know the jars were those of purification? Again, I am not one to say, read the Talmud, read the Mishnah. Don't, you know, it's, it's, it's Babylonian soothsaying. But there is also the codified history of the Jews. And in there, they will tell you about how the stone jars were distributed throughout the countryside for the laws of the purification. Plus, I have actually spoken to um, um, those in Jerusalem up at the Temple Mount regarding this ritual when I went to the Temple Institute several times and spoke um, with, um, I think it's Rabbi Rickman or something, that's his name. That was many years ago. But they told us all about the, the, the Levites, right? 
when we saw where they they lived in the um, the arched area, the Levitical quarter in Jerusalem. Maybe some of you that have been there can um, also give information about that. Good question here, Alex. Now maybe Alex is um, is from Asia. It looks like we've got some Asian symbols. Is that Asian or is that another language? It's quite interesting. Will Christians from false churches be saved? It comes down to the individual, the circumcision of the heart, right? Circumcision of the heart. That is right, yes, yes. And Libby Tube, Shabbat Shalom, Libby. Um, John chapter 2, 6, she throws up that scripture. And there were six stone water jugs standing there according to the mode of cleansing. Well, thank you. Right there in the scripture, it testifies that they were there for the mode of cleansing. Thank you. See, emphasis mine. She all capped that. There you go, Scott. That answers your question. That's even better than the Talmud and the Mishnah because it's the holy word of Yahweh that tells us these things so. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Yes, Bruce. Thank blooming goodness the Georgia Guidestones got wrecked this week. I, somebody blew them up. Is that outrageous? About time. I'm surprised they... Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. yeah, somebody snuck in there at night and just bombed them, detonated, got some fertilizer, and most probably wasn't fertilizer. Most probably was, what's that stuff they use to um, 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 blow up hogs down in the south? We saw a video on it once. What is the stuff? You, you, can, you can, yeah, it's crazy. And you fire around into it, and boom. Anyway, I'm Get me in the chat and I'll go sideways. C4. No, it wasn't C4, Diesel Grandpa. C4. Yeah, C4 would do it though, wouldn't it? Tannerite. Much more truth. Tannerite. Yeah, it looked like a bunch of Tannerite to me from the explosion. You know, me being an expert in um, explosives, of course. But we won't get into where I... Uh, I get my expertise in that. But it looked like it was Tannerite. Do you agree much more truth? Did you see the video blowing up there? Yes, wayfaring farmer, Tannerite. Yeah, it was Tannerite, I reckon. <laughs> oh, Dutchman, be very careful. Oh, oh, I, I'm not going to say anything. Oh, Dutchman, what do you think? And he, he brings up a rabbi. Rabbi Tovia Singer is an anti-missionary who tries to steal people's souls and faith. And um, if you ever want to read an absolutely amazing book that was put out by a rabbi I knew back in the day, and I, um, it is called The Messianic Believer's Handbook. And I do have a PDF copy of that that I could make available. But if you ever come across that rabbi singer and you he will try and destroy and take away people's faith, an anti-missionary. And the Messianic Hand Believers Handbook is amazing, one of the best reads, and just basically destroys all of his arguments. Um, I, I, I highly recommend that. It may be available online. Let me have a look and see 
if I still have it on my computer. Messianic. Um, Yes, it's called the First Response Handbook Messianics. And I, I've got it in PDF. I'm banging it up right here. I'd love it if I knew how to share my screen with you. Um, and it is, and this is the title, First Response Handbook, Providing Life-Saving Answers to Anti-Missionary Activity. Now, of course, um, um, Rabbi Tovia Singer is an anti-missionary, and you need to be equipped to have life-saving answers to those that would try and steal your faith. And that's why, back in the day, I always was troubled when these messianic teachers would then bring in um, the synagogue of Satan that didn't even believe Yahushua was the Messiah and have them teaching you. And you'll be like, well, how can they teach me anything? Because if you don't have the son, then you don't know the father. You're not qualified to teach me. Sorry, you're just not. That's what the scriptures tell you in John, 1 John. If you don't have the son, you don't have the father. You're not qualified to teach me. Nobody's qualified to teach you unless they have the son. It's that simple, brethren. So be very wary of that. Uh, anyway. Megan W. at Torah to the Tribes. Is it grape juice or wine at the Passover meal since some believe wine is not allowed? Wine is allowed. Fermented wine is allowed. It was fermented. It was fermented wine. Now, we also have unfermented grape juice available to the children and to those that, um, you know, are recovering addicts because you've got to be, you don't want to be a stumbling block to your brethren. But let's not get into the the nonsense that the, 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 the Jews back in the day were drinking non-fermented wine because that is just simply not the case. I mean, we know what happened when, when Noah had a bit too much. It was obviously fermented, right? Right. So it was fermented. It was fermented. But we have both options because um, we don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Ah, oh, Diesel Grandpa saying, says, Portland had a messianic gathering each year with anti-messianic teachers. Yeah, 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 they did. It was like, what was it called back in the day? The Love for Israel conference, right? I, I spoke at that several times, in fact. But yeah, they'd have a lot of anti-missionary activity. Anti-missionary uh, activity is what it's called. Anti-missionary means those against the gospel the mission of the gospel, anti-missionaries, right? We're missionaries. We're, to get, we're sent on a mission of the best Sorah. They're anti-missionary, right? So, Jose, um, at Torah to the Tribes, interesting parallels. Yahushua touched dead Lazarus on the third of the week, third of the week, going on to Pesach, there was foot washing on the seventh. He was mistaken as a gardener with water. Exactly. Oh, you see, you're starting, starting to get those so-level revelations when you start to see the three and the four equals seven and the paraduma. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? All right, we'll finish up with Nika Bragg. Can you please do a teaching on deliverance, seeing that others are interested in well as well? Oh, okay. Well, that would be maybe that's something we could do at Sukkot. And um, 
I'm going to have other guest teachers at Sukkot this year. I'm really excited and, and honored and blessed that um, Libby has um, agreed to come up to Sukkot and is going to be um, teaching here. So those of you that love to tune into the Libby Tube, you're going to be really blessed. And I'm hoping that um, Sister Brenda will come up and teach as well because she's a phenomenal teacher. I don't, I don't see her in the chat here. But um, we have yet to connect about that. But she did teach at last um, um, Suko and um, was it's just fabulous. And of course, I do hope that my brother Kevin Niebling will teach because he does a fabulous job on the um, the paleo and the Hebrew and breaking it down. So anyway, I'm really excited that we've got the feast site open for the whole seven days. If you want it cushy, rent an RV. If you want to be rough and tough, then you go into the, the spider field cabins. Or if you want to just camp out in the tents and enjoy lots of coffee and the Oregon weather, then you can tent camp. But it's a great place. It's right on the Santiam River and 114 acres, 111 acres. It's a beautiful, beautiful location. We're getting ready to prepare for the Feast of Tabernacles. You guys be blessed. Shabbat Shalom as always. Remember, Shabbat Fellowship meets 9 Pacific Standard Time in the morning every Sabbath, and you can connect with your friends and brethren then. Or other days of the week, we'll be opening back up the platforms where you can connect six days a week at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect. Thank you for all of your generosity, those of you that do support the ministry. It means so much through your letters, through your donations, and through your support. And those that are watching, please subscribe to the ministry channel. Share the ministry channel with those that you love and those that you're concerned about in the faith. Give us some thumbs up. Put some comments down afterwards. And I pray we'll see you next Shabbat with all of our cameras back in the full broadcast mode. But if not, then you'll just have to stick with me through this temporary little screen situation we've got going on here. And sorry about the nasal cam, but it is what it is. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>